Well, how great is that that God has allowed us to great privilege to serve uh, uh, the women and uh, orphans and foster children in Mexico. We, and God says that's the only religion that He finds without blame, faultless, to care for orphans and widows in their distress. And <clears throat> what a privilege to go and uh, provide mattresses for them. How beautiful is that? Uh, thank you, James 127, for your faithfulness to Christ and uh, uh, being our hands and our feet uh, on behalf of Christ for Cornerstone and showing love to these uh, women and children who are in need. And may God continue to uh, uh, bless our work and bless our efforts. Uh, we have a special setup today. I don't know if this will be permanent or temporary. Um, I, you know, read so many quotes, and uh, I don't know if you guys are understanding what I'm reading or not. So, you know, for, it helps me when I'm hearing a sermon, and there's a lot lengthy quote if they project it um, for me to see as uh, someone is, as it's being read. So we're going to try to do that. So we'll see how my partnership with Peter works today. This is unrehearsed, on the fly. So pray for us. <laughs> Uh, it's been a tremendous few months uh, learning of the gospel of Christ. The responses have been tremendous. Um, it really has. God has been profoundly working in our church, in the hearts of uh, uh, the leaders and all the members of our body. It has been an amazing, amazing uh, sight to behold how... We had diminished the beauty of the gospel by our own flesh, by our pride and our own legalism. But in spite of us, God has shown us, opened our eyes to see uh, and behold the, the true beauty of the cross for Christians. And um, it has produced uh, joy in our lives, granted us uh, freedom, uh, so much freedom, and uh allowed us to taste and see that the Lord is good. Um, I got one of the sweetest gifts uh, in, in memory uh, this past Sunday. Of course, it was a sister in the church. right? Um, she wrote Galatians 6.6, 6, One who has taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Dear Pastor James, I'm so rejoicing with you in the freedom Christ has per- purchased for us. To the gospel, and she drew a small smiley face and a larger smiley face, and it got larger and larger and a big, large smiley face. <laughs> For many, this also means a lot more happy crying. I started carrying tissue in my purse for this very reason, as I probably cried every Sunday since February. I also noticed that you do a lot more wiping of eyes than you preach or share with us. So in obedience to the verses I wrote out, I'd like to share the most excellent pocket tissue with you. It retains its shape but doesn't dissolve into lint even after a good thorough cry. Feel free to share with those around you. Happy face. So she got me like this like super-sized box of tissue. So I brought it today. I'm going to use it today. and um, I'm going to share it with uh, maybe Gary. Come on, Gary, come on. Share it with, uh, Paul's coming back next Sunday, so. <laughs> I have a, I have one reserved for him. Um, online, uh, Pastor Dan on his Facebook, he's been talking about 
sanctification by faith alone, and there are like 20 some odd comments uh, in light of that, just sharing from their hearts on this liberating truth. And one uh, person wrote, My thoughts on sanctification by faith alone sounds too good to be true. I really do hope it's true because it's super liberating and joy-producing, but it's still confusing. And uh, man, that sums up like my, my response to this truth. It's too good to be true. That was my response when I first heard the gospel. And then discovering that not just my salvation, but my whole Christian life is by faith alone. It sounds too good to be true. At the same time, I so hope it is true. Because it is super liberating, joy-producing, but it is still confusing. Um, it is confusing. It's uh, so different than other doctrines, other theological truths, where you study... You understand, and you put it in your pocket, and you have it. You know this truth. You have it. You, you, you know it. You, you uh, have a firm grasp of it. But the gospel is so different because it cuts against the grain of our flesh. Our prideful hearts rail against it. Our default state being legalism. And our second idol being antinomianism or libertine or selfishness our flesh cuts against this truth so it's a lifelong effort we never fully grasp it um, heart work is always the hardest work but that is God's work for us and that is what we labor to do to behold the beauty of the cross and to truly understand it I read a quote by Luther this week that helped me, um, helped me be, to uh, understand how difficult it is. Uh, Luther wrote this, how uh, God's determination to love us through our faith in His grace is initially an exceedingly bitter thing. He says it is a bitter thing. Let me read to you the full quote. It would be exceedingly difficult to get into another habit of thinking in which we clearly separate faith and works of love. Even though we are now in faith, the heart is always ready to boast of itself before God and say, After all, I have preached so long and lived so well and done so much. Surely He will take this into account. But it cannot be done. With men you may boast, but when you come before God, leave all that boasting at home and remember to appeal from justice to grace. But let anybody try this and he will see and experience how exceedingly hard and bitter it is for a man who all his life has been mired in his work of righteousness to pull himself out of it and with all his heart rise up through faith in this one mediator. I myself have been preaching and cultivating it, the message of grace, for almost 20 years and still feel the old clinging dirt of wanting to deal so with God that I may contribute something so that He will have to give me His grace 
in exchange for my holiness and still cannot get it into my head that I should surrender myself completely to sheer grace. Yet I know that this is what I should and must do. This uh, default state, legalist, is so strong in our hearts. Luther, even after 20 years of striving to live by the gospel of Christ, labored to do it well. He was still striving to grasp it. It was still uh, confusing to him. Because in our hearts, we want to boast. We want to contribute we want to somehow add to the work of Christ so that we can control God and make Him bless us, make Him sanctify us, and even make Him save us. I shared with you last week how I figured out my, the point of my error in my theology, how I left one word out in my mind. And that affected my heart and affected my behavior and caused me to have spiritual pride and spiritually be in despair. Shared with you how my formula for salvation was orthodox. The Roman Catholic formula for salvation is thus. Faith plus good works equals salvation. That is the formula for salvation in all religions. Faith is required, but it is a faith that is not alone. It is accompanied by good works, whether it's uh, going to Mass, communion, the elements, or pilgrimage to Mecca, or two years missionary work overseas. Faith plus some good works equals salvation. Protestants, we protested. The Reformation was a protest against this works-based route to uh, righteousness in Christ. The biblical formula for salvation is faith alone is that which saves. But that faith is never alone. Good works always accompanies genuine faith. Good works are evidences, good fruit are evidences of genuine faith. But it is not what produces salvation. It is faith alone that produces salvation. And yet in my mind, I I left my Reformed theology at the cross. Once I was saved, I reverted back to the Roman Catholic formula for sanctification for the Christian life. Now that I am a Christian, uh, my formula was faith plus good works equals sanctification. I believe, but faith is insufficient. I need to do A, B, C, D, E, F, G, all the way to Z. God did everything, and I must do everything for me to grow as a Christian. And... I'll talk about this more later, but it it caused me to be schizophrenic. It caused me um, to go insane because it either produced pride or despair. In early years, 
you know, I lived with these guys, did apartment training, and woke up five in the morning to do calisthenics in the quiet time. I memorized like a thousand verses in the first year as a Christian. I memorized the book of James. We went out evangelizing twice a week. We'd open our preaching. We did, you know, faith trips where they dropped us off, and we just preached the gospel without any money, and trust God that He will bring us back home. I was uh, steeped in the Christian ministry, and yet all these things produced uh, pride in my heart, produced such um, arrogance. Uh, Charles Bridges said, pride, pride is self-contending with God for preeminence. Stott said, pride is more than the first of the seven deadly sins. It is itself the essence of all sin. Edward said, what a foolish, silly, miserable, blind, deceived, poor, warm am I when pride works. So although I had all these merit badges declaring to the world that I was a faithful Christian, in my heart there was a growing corruption of self-sufficiency and self-boasting. On the other hand, every time I failed, every time I sinned, I fell short of, of God's word or my own standards. Every time I performed poorly in the Christian in life and ministry, there was despair um, because I left out that one word. You know, I, I believe faith is it's great, but if it's my works, then that's the pivotal requirement that is required for sanctification. And if I'm not growing sanctification, it's all my fault. I have no one else to blame. By the grace of God. Uh, we got opened our eyes to see that for us to uh, separate our understanding of how we are saved and how we're sanctified, how we're glorified, was erroneous. The biblical formula, just like salvation is thus, faith equals sanctification and good works. That our our, our response. We're helpless. We, all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. All our works are but rubbish compared to the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ. All we can do is have a mustard seed of faith. And by faith, we are transformed. By faith, God produces in us as we walk by the Spirit, trust in the Holy Spirit, God produces in us fruits of the Holy Spirit. Um, as I've studied more, I've come to realize that that this experience has been um, replicated throughout church history, throughout human history. I'm not the first one. I won't be the last to experience a pride that comes with legalism and also this despair that comes with legalism. Uh, 17th century Puritan pastor Walter Marshall in the opening chapter of his book The Gospel Mystery of Sanctification wrote this. May God bless my discovery of the powerful means of holiness so as to save some from killing themselves. To save some from killing themselves. 
Pastor Marshall was grieving as he wrote these words. People in his church were despairing that they would never obtain spiritual maturity and never gain victory over their sins. Despite their continual striving for holiness, they felt themselves unable to escape sinful habits and patterns of thought. Their despair was becoming more acute as they realized that years of battling, praying, and grieving over sin did not help them break their bondage in sin. Sin had not become less troublesome in their lives, nor less burdensome to their hearts. Those for whom Marshall was concerned believed themselves forever bound to passions and habits that marked them as spiritually destitute. No religious formula or personal discipline had brought the victory over sin that these desperate souls craved. Persistent failure to be what Scripture required and their own hearts desired had become spiritual torture, almost too painful to bear. And they wrestled with these questions. Were there no answers? Was holiness a mystery without resolution? Is there no hope for us? With deep love for his own people, this Puritan pastor wrote this tract, this book, and he articulated why he had to write about holiness and what benefits would follow when God's people truly understood the means the Bible provides to help them grow in faithfulness. And here's a quote from the book. Some of the more ignorant zealots for personal holiness do inhumanely macerate, torment their bodies with fasting and other austerities to kill their lusts. And when they see their lusts are still too hard for them, they fall into despair and are driven by horror of conscience to make away with themselves. May God bless my discovery of the powerful means of holiness so far as to save someone or other from killing themselves. And instead, I pray that God will enlarge the hearts of many by it to run with great cheerfulness, joy, and thanksgiving in the way of His commandments. He was concerned that they were mutilating their flesh. Some were even considering ending their lives because they were so desperate for their sins. And so he shared them, taught them of the beauteous promise, beautiful promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How it is by faith alone that we are saved. And it is by faith alone we grow as a Christian. We can go farther back in the 17th century. We can go back all the way to the Apostle Paul in the first century. Romans seven, fourteen through twenty-five. We read this passage, and uh, I would say many, if not all of us, know of this torment. If you are a Christian and you have longed for holiness, you've longed to overcome sin, desire to walk in the Spirit, produce fruits of the Holy Spirit, then you know um, the despair that Paul is articulating here. Repeated failure. 
and how we look at other godly examples intended to encourage us. Instead, they, fu- they function as mirrors of condemnation. And we see other Christians growing, overcoming sin. It becomes a source of self-hatred, self-condemnation. This is what Paul experienced in Romans 7, which, which he articulates. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. I, For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law. It is law. It is not advice or counsel. An irrefutable truth that when I want to do what is right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see my members in the law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin and dwells in my members. Wretched man I am. Present tense. Wretched man I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Before we read, read verse 25, H.A. Ironside has a comment on this passage that is helpful for us. Believers today are not under law, either as a means of justification or as a rule of life, but are justified by grace and are called upon to walk in grace. Primarily here, Romans seven fourteen through 25 we have a believing Jew struggling to obtain holiness by using the law as a rule of life and resolutely attempting to compel his own nature to be subject to it. In Christendom, now the average Gentile believer goes through the same experience. For legality is commonly taught almost everywhere. Therefore, when one is converted, it is but natural to reason that now one has been born of God, it is only a matter of determination and persistent endeavor to subject oneself to the law, and one will achieve a life of holiness. And God Himself permits the test to be made in order that His people may learn experimentally that the flesh in a believer is no better than the flesh in an unbeliever. When he ceases from self-effort, he finds deliverance to the Spirit by occupation with the risen Christ. How sweet is that? We are, our flesh is none better than our former self. And God allows us to go through this despair so that we might experimentally taste the sweetness of the gospel for ourselves. So Paul said, what a wretched man I am. He wasn't just talking about, it wasn't a theological dialogue that he's sharing with us. He he was experiencing it. This was his experience post-faith. And he learned for himself that his unredeemed flesh, sin in his flesh, is still as strong as it was pre-Christ. 
So for his Christian life, he needed Christ as well. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? Verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind. But with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Romans 8, 1 and 2. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. This is what we've been talking about. This is what Paul has been pointing us to. That the antidote from pride and, and, and despair is the gospel of Christ. This is how God rescues us. This is our only hope as Christians. Gospel is not something we leave behind at our conversion. It is something that we keep in our hearts every day. We are to trust in it every day. It is our only means of living this Christian life. And so we go to our study for this morning, the book of Galatians. Galatians is so important because it, def- it defends the gospel from an indirect attack. The book of Romans defends the gospel theologically, doctrinally. The book of Galatians, Paul is dealing with the implications of the gospel and how the gospel is often attacked here at this point and in a subversive way. Under the radar, the gospel is attacked. So the believer must take care to watch both fronts front of us and also behind us. Um, he begins the letter by talking about how the gospel is attacked two ways, uh, within the church and outside the church. Uh, verses 8 and 9, we'll start there. And he talks about how outside the church, a heteros gospel is preached. And if anyone... Even an angel from heaven, verse 8, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you. Let him be anathema, accursed. As we have said before, I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. Also the, also the church often, another gospel, a contrary gospel is promoted. Uh, whether it's by the Mormon church or witnesses, Roman Catholic church, so on and so forth. They call it the gospel, but it's not good news, it is bad news. Paul said, protect yourself. Let him, doesn't matter what credentials he has, even if an angel were to come, anathema. But he begins by warning the Galatian church of the more common way the gospel is attacked. It's from within the church, and it's from within our own hearts. Uh, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ, and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you within the church, some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Metastrepho, the Greek word, carries the idea of turning something into its opposite. 
of subverting something, of, of perverting it, of changing it. Although they were oblivious to it, these Christians were being shaken to their very foundations by the false teachings of the Judaizers. They were agreeing with the basic truths of the gospel, but they were supplanting Christ. They were distorting the gospel by adding works to grace. Works to grace. This is the most common way the gospel is attacked in the church. It is distortion by addition. Now that you are Christians, you must do A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And an endless list of things to maintain your position in Christ. Or maintain God's love for you. Or to somehow keep your standing or to grow as a Christian. Pastor MacArthur wrote, to change the message of grace is to stifle and eventually asphyxiate the church. As Paul wrote to Titus, there are many rebellious men, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach, Titus 1.10. The greatest enemies of the church, he continued, are not those who openly contradict the Bible and denounce Christ but those who subtly undermine and distort his true gospel with a system of works righteousness. Now stop and pause. Could it be possible that you and I have done this ourselves? Is it possible that we have unknowingly distorted the gospel? What is so beautiful liberating, glorious. We have marred it. We have tarnished it. We're subverting it, corrupting it by our pride and our legalism or our selfishness. Is it possible that the gospel that you hold in your hearts is in some measure not consistent with the gospel that is given to us in the scriptures, is that possible? How do you know? Consider the fruits of your life. Fruit reveals the root. If you have a distorted gospel, then there will be spiritual pride. There will be comparing yourself with others, boasting in yourself. Seeking the applause of men. You'll be here doing good, good deeds as a means to an end. Ultimately, you're doing it for yourself. You're doing this to somehow control God. God, if you do this, you'll bless my life, bless my family, bless my finances, bless my children, bless my church, bless my ministry. To be pride in your life. I'll come out where you're angry at others, anger in your, toward your family members. Now that's a sure sign of pride, frustration, impatience, hard-heartedness, stubbornness, 
all those are fruits. That it's a distorted gospel you're holding on to. At the same time, you're experiencing the opposite. You're experiencing spiritual despair. In your heart, there's a, you're, you're hating life. There's self-condemnation. There is hopelessness. There's a, you're exasperated by the Christian life. It feels like drudgery, uh, you know, a treadmill at the highest level, and you're not making any gr- ground. And uh, so you've kind of surrendered. You've kind of given up in your Christian life. You're here physically. You're at flock physically. You're at retreats. But I mean, you just, you just glossy-eyed. You're, just, you're disillusioned. Your, your heart's far away. You know, you're abounding in good works, but you have forsaken your first love. In your heart, you uh, cherish other things. You, you, you're excited by other things. You're excited by the world more than Christ. You're excited about entertainment. You're excited about your free time, your own pursuits, you know, money, relationships. You're more thrilled at these things than you're about the gospel, the worship of Christ, or prayer, or the word. You're, you're doing these things out of duty, but your heart's far away. If those things are present, I think they're symptomatic of something that's far, of far greater corruption in your heart. And it's that you're holding on to a gospel that's distorted. I know I've done my part to distort that gospel by taking that word out. And you've done your share as well. For Paul, this wasn't a small thing. It wasn't a light thing. Paul saw this as a serious threat to the gospel of Christ. So much so, in Galatians 2.11, when Paul saw that Peter was not acting in line with the gospel of God's grace, when Peter was walking in liberty when these Judaizers were not around, and when these Judaizers came... He all of a sudden changed his behavior. Paul saw it as a serious threat, so much so he publicly called him out, rebuked Peter to his face before all. Paul was a gracious man, gentle, humble, godly man. He wouldn't do this if it was an issue of preference, an issue of wisdom. But the gospel was at stake. He didn't care if Peter was an original apostle called by Christ himself. Before everyone, he called Peter out and rebuked him. How dare you? How dare you subvert the gospel of Christ? And he uses strong language to attack this distortion. He calls it desertion. Galatians 1.6 You're not deserting a doctrinal truth By this distortion, you're deserting Christ. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you. In fact, chapter 5, verse 2, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. You are 
you are turning in your salvation. You're forsaking Christ. There is no value to the gospel if you accept in principle any work as value for your salvation and for your Christian life. Galatians 5.3 I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. In principle, if you accept one law, one point, you're obligated to the whole law. And verse 4, you are severed from Christ. You are severed. You who, you who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. So, so from, from Paul's perspective, everything is at stake here. Everything is at stake. Paul is fighting for the heart of the gospel. He's not debating over trifles. So this whole letter is Paul defending justification by faith alone and sanctification by faith alone. This argument reaches its climax at the latter part of chapter 2. And that is our text, our focus of our attention. Galatians 2.15 through verse 21 is justification by faith alone. Chapter 3 verses 1 through 6 is sanctification by faith alone. 2.15 through 21 is salvation by faith alone. 3.1 through 6 is Christian life, holiness by faith alone. The heart of man's spiritual dilemma is that he is incapable of overcoming total sinfulness that separates him from the Holy God. The first book of the Bible, Job's friend Bildad asked, How can a man be just before God? Job 25.4 How can a guilty and condemned sinner be made righteous and thereby acceptable to God? The answer is impossible. No amount of law keeping can make a person righteous because the root of sinfulness is in the fallenness of man's heart and not in his actions. Man's basic problem is in what he is and not in what he does. Sinful acts are but merely outward expressions of a depraved nature that contain the sinful thoughts. A person who hates therefore is inwardly a murderer. A person who loves is inwardly an adulterer. A person who lies has first lied in his heart. The provision of justification by faith alone is God's answer to that dilemma in need. The summary statement of the gospel is that one is saved not by works, but by faith alone. Here, verses 15 through 15 and 16, we find the gospel in miniature, and it, it can't be more clear. We ourselves are Jews by birth. We're Jews. We know the law. We're not Gentiles who don't even know the law. We know the law. And if we know anything, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. That is clear. That is obvious. In fact, at the end of verse 16, by works of the law, no one will be justified. The law 
was not given to save. The law has no power to, to save or, or justify. The law is powerless. Briefly go through the four purposes of the Mosaic law. Paul is speaking law in the capital L sense, the Mosaic law, summed up in the Ten Commandments, but talking about the Pentateuch and the Old Testament, how the Old Testament was given and the purposes of that for the Christian in the New Testament. Four purposes. First of all, the law was given to stop every mouth. That is to muzzle every voice that would flaunt self-righteousness before God. Romans 3.19 The law speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. God gave the law. Excuse me, but that's what the Bible says to shut people up. People who are boasting about the righteousness. These religious people who are filled with their own achievements, moral achievements before man. God gave the law to shut them up. To shut every mouth. That they might be muzzled. To be quieted when confronted with the holiness. The perfect standard of holiness that God's righteous law demands. When individuals rightly perceive the righteousness that the law requires. They are left hopelessly speechless. They can't see anything. Secondly, God's purpose in giving the law is to produce every human being a sense of personal guilt, accountability, and ultimately a need for God's forgiveness. Again, Romans 3.19, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. That the entire world may be subject to judgment, subject to punishment by God. God's holy law not only muzzles human self-righteous boasts, simultaneously it stimulates a sense of personal guilt and accountability to the lawgiver. It, it, it convicts, it, it humiliates, it produces guilt, it's a sense of accountability. Thirdly, provides an objective knowledge of sin for the human nature. Romans 3.20, the next verse. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. Through the law we know sin. We are not left to our own imagination of the issue of sin. It's not arbitrary. It's not subjective. It's not just up to speculation. Here is an objective standard of what is right and what is wrong. God has set in stone and declared for the whole world His moral standards. This is precisely what Paul meant in Romans 7, 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet. If the law had not said, you shall not covet. Romans 5, 20. Law came to increase the trespass. The law came to magnify our sins. The point is this. God introduced His holy law in the course of human history to make apparent to us the exceeding sinfulness of sin. The offense is more reprehensible when we realize that sin directs itself not just against one another, but our sin 
It's directed against the personal Almighty God, our Creator, our Sustainer, and above all, our Redeemer. The law is like a spiritual x-ray machine that exposes what's inside of us. We can't deny it. It shows us our sin. But just like the x-ray, it has no uh, healing powers. It can't do anything about the cancer. But it exposes it to our humiliation. Luther has this helpful quote. It is no small matter that to understand rightly what the law is and what is the true use and office thereof. We see that the law is good and profitable, but in its own proper use, which is first to bridle civil transgressions and to reveal and increase spiritual transgressions. Wherefore, the law is also a light which shows and reveals not the grace of God, not righteousness, not life, The law reveals sin, death, wrath, and judgment of God. The law, when it is in its true sense, does nothing else but reveal sin. Engender wrath. Accuse us. Terrify men. So that it brings them to the very brink of desperation. This is the proper use of the law. And here it has an end. And it ought to go no further. We must end it here, the use of the law for the Christian. Final purpose is that God's law serves as a schoolmaster, as a guardian, as a strict child disciplinarian to bring its hearers to Christ. Galatians 3.24, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Previous verse says, Before faith came, Galatians 3.23, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith we revealed. So the law held us captive, law convicted us, law exposed us of our sins, law creased our guilt and condemned us. So it, it, it constrained us to Christ that when Christ appeared, we might embrace Him. We might love Him. We might run to Him. It is in this way, Romans 10.4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Right. So Christ is the fulfillment of the law. Right. The law has done its job in a person's life when imprisoned, right, convicts, right, magnifies his sin and guilt, shames him, and causes him to run to Christ. Because Christ is the end of the law. And that is why in Galatians 3, Galatians 2, excuse me, 16 and 17, he said, that's why we have turned to Jesus. Because we are Jews and we know that no one is justified by works of the law, but only through Christ. Only through Christ. Due to lack of time, we'll jump to verse 19. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. For the law to stop having that oppressive power over us, 
we must die to it. And Paul said, I die to the law. What does that mean? It means all the demands, obligations, all the influences of the law have no power over me. There's no power. I am dead to the law. Right? It's kind of like you can accrue all the debt in this world once you die. Right? That, that, that is canceled. It doesn't transfer to your afterlife. It doesn't transfer to your children or grandchildren. It ends with you. The power of, of the laws of this nation with its creditors and debtors have no power over a dead person. Likewise, once you are dead, the law has no power. Paul says, I've died. No longer has authority over me. How did this happen? Paul, how did you die to the law? Well, I died to the law just like how all Christians have died to the law. Verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. What a striking declaration. That we are united with Christ in His death by faith. When we put our trust in Him, we are crucified with Him on the cross. In the cross, He took our identity, including all our sins and all our filthy righteous works. And it was crucified with Him on the cross. As horrible as is the image of our own crucifixion, we must recognize that this is spiritual reality and it is the necessary antidote of both the spiritual pride and the spiritual despair. That all that we bolster before Christ was nailed with Him. And all that we were ashamed of, all that we were convicted of by the law was crucified with Him, nailed with Him. And now we are dead because we have died with Him. All that we boasted of and all that we are ashamed of is no longer part of us. It's lifeless. It's dead. It's crucified with Him. We are dead and yet we live. We are united to Christ. Paul continues, no longer, it's no longer I will live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. And the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. He's talking now beyond just salvation, beyond this justification. For his Christian life, he continues to live by faith in the death of Christ. And here we start how we're sanctified by faith alone. The life we live now is also by faith alone. Our identity, therefore, must be transformed yet again. Follow with me. Not only are we not our former righteousness, our filthy rags righteousness, 
not only are we not our formal filthiness, our, our sinfulness, we are also not our current righteousness or our current sinfulness. See, all the older brothers here, your identity is what we have done for Christ. What we have done. And so there's pride. All the younger brothers, it's all about what we have not done for Christ. What we have failed to do, so we're in despair. Post-Christ, we are to live by faith. And trust, not just our past, but our current, right now, our identity. is not what I have done for Him, or what I didn't do for Christ. But it's what God has done for me to the cross. Because it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live, I live by faith. The Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is what Luther said 20 years. And he's struggling. Because he's an older brother. He was the best monk, right? And he wants to boast of his self-righteousness. Some of us have no idea what he's talking about. Because if we were monks, we'd be the worst. Right? We would be the worst. And we'd be in despair. But this is where the gospel makes us same. Um, maybe it helps some of you. Maybe the younger brothers, this will help you more. You know, you got to use a, use a movie to kind of get everybody up to speed. A lot of good movies out there. This is my top top five, I guess. Shawshank Redemption. All right, great movie. All right, you know, good, good message. And... um uh, you know, Morgan Freeman is that guy, life in prison, looking for parole, and he said, um, this old guy, he got out of prison after like 40, 50 years in prison, and he goes out to the real world, he can't make it, and remember, he commits suicide, if you, seen the mo- if you didn't see the movie, I'm sorry, <laughs> he commits suicide, um, and they're wondering, why did he commit suicide, and he said, if you're in prison for so long, after a while, you become institutionalized. You become so accustomed to prison that you're uncomfortable without walls and without bars. And he said to his friends, these walls are funny. First you hate them, and then you get used to them. Time passes, you get so you depend on them. And so... The older brother, after Christ, you hate your righteous deeds. But after a while, you get comfortable with your pride of doing good works. And after a while, you need them. This is your identity. You are what you do, and you are what you don't do. So you are proud of your resume, and you're proud of things that you do not do as a Christian. For younger brothers, this despair of our failure, this self-condemnation, you hate them, but you're comfortable. In a weird way, you, you need them for your self-identity. Paul is saying, no longer. The gospel sets us free from both. The life I now live, I don't live based upon my performance or based on what the law tells me 
of my transgressions. I live by faith in Christ. And then he adds that who loved me and gave himself up for me, past tense. That my identity is not based on my performance. It's not based on me. My identity is set. It's just a matter of me believing it, but Christ loved me, past tense. All right. Aorist active. Gave himself for me, aorist active, simple past tense. It's been done, accomplished. This is my identity. It's who I am in Christ. For me to add to it is ridiculous. For me to take away is absurd. This is the reality that I must trust in. My life in Christ. Apart from Him, I am dead. 1 Corinthians 1, 30, 31. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I've got to memorize 1 Corinthians 1, 30, and 31. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, and redemption. All of it. Therefore, that the one who boasts, boast in the Lord alone. And how do we do this? It's by faith alone, right? That's, with man, it is impossible. It is impossible for us. Only way this is possible for us to be saved, to be rescued from pride and despair is by faith alone and by grace alone. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, 10. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this tells us faith even itself is by grace. Right? All of it is by grace, undeserved. So even the faith that we have is given to us by God, by grace. It's not by works. It is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast. Therefore, Paul says in Galatians 3.1, O oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your very eyes. Jesus Christ is publicly portrayed as crucified. A better rendering is clearly portrayed. I preached the gospel to you. It was vivid. It was powerful. It was clear. The gospel gripped your hearts and it saved you. I know it saved you. Why? Because the Holy Spirit was received by you. You received the Holy Spirit. The dwelling Holy Spirit of God came in your midst. And you received it not because of your works, but because of your faith. Verse 2, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? It was by faith you were saved. It was by faith you received the Holy Spirit. Then why are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now perfected by the flesh? Why are you now striving in the flesh? Going back to the law. When God has done it, by faith alone. Verse 4, did you suffer Pascal? It's experienced. Did you experience all these things in vain? Was it for nothing? Hearing the gospel, experiencing the Holy Spirit, was all for naught. It is. If you go back to the law and rely upon your flesh. I mean, it can't be more clear. Verse 5 and 6, he, he who supplied the Spirit to you and worked miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith. This is Abraham believed God it was counted to him as righteousness. 
The law has no power to save. It has no medicinal, no healing powers. All it could do is convict you, make you feel guilty, or give you pride. False pride. Why are you running to practice the law? When all the blessings of the gospel is laid before you. Final quote by Sinclair Ferguson. Is this the first first thing to remember? Of course, is that we must never separate the benefits, regeneration, justification, sanctification from the benefactor, Jesus Christ. The Christians who are most focused on their own spirituality may give the impression of being the most spiritual, but from the New Testament's point of view, those who have almost forgotten about their own spirituality because their focus is so exclusively on their union with Jesus Christ and what He has accomplished are those who are growing and exhibiting fruitfulness. Historically speaking, whenever the piety of a particular group is focused on our spirituality, that piety will eventually exhaust itself on its own resources. Only where our piety forgets about ourselves and focuses on Jesus Christ will our piety nourished by the ongoing resources the Spirit brings to us from the source of all true piety, our Lord Jesus It is not the quality or the quantity of our faith that is the issue. It is the object of our faith. Jesus said, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can move mountains. That's the faith that saved us, a mustard seed of faith. And that's the faith that will sanctify us. A mustard seed faith, the amount of faith, will, will sanctify us. The issue is the object of our faith. And I want to ask you again. Are you trusting in a gospel that's distorted? That is not in line with the gospel of God's grace, gospel of Jesus Christ. Are you believing in a gospel that's dependent upon you, on your works? Or are you trusting in the gospel that is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? If your experience has been pride and despair, then the root is false gospel, distorted gospel. Pure fruit is uh, liberty. That's the word. I mean, that's Galatians 5. It is for freedom that Christ sets you free. Uh, it's freedom. When the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. If you're experiencing freedom and you're afraid, man, I don't know, this freedom, I just kind of, I, I like the prison walls of my pride. It's so comfortable. I like my misery, despair, freedom. I want to run back to these things. No, you're on the right track. If you're experiencing freedom, you're believing in the right gospel. If you're experiencing joy, experiencing the satisfaction in Christ, you're being affected by the gospel. Like sanctification is out of the overflow of your heart. You're not doing a list of do's and don'ts. But because your heart has changed, your taste but this world is, is changing. And your desire for God is growing. And it's not you doing it. It's the gospel doing it. All of those are fruits. That your view of the gospel is consistent. The gospel that you hold is consistent with the gospel of the scriptures. Let's pray. God, we uh, 
Thank you for this. Undeserved gift you've given to us in the gospel. We know that our works do not move you. Whatever we do does not move your heart. There is nothing we can do to call your attention toward us, to save us, or to sanctify us. We are utterly helpless. Only your Son moves your heart. Only the cross. And only those who are at the foot of Calvary are covered by the blood of the Lamb. So Lord, we run to the cross. We That is our hope. That is our only hope. May our trust be fully set on Christ, what He has finished on our behalf. And may that be our sole boast in our lives. In Jesus' name.